Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Just a quick heads up. This podcast contains rude language and adult themes. The philosophy of sex. things that we should make taboo we don't make taboo like we don't make rape culture taboo we don't make hyper masculinity taboo we don't make phobia taboo it's like the operating system of a culture needs to get updated regularly we need to, rem- to do for it to remain a sin right if we want to taste the deliciousness of it because it's like you're telling me that all i'm worth is you telling me that i should sit on your face and you haven't even said hi to me If taboo, intimacy, and desire are going to dance together, they have to all be together, they have to all be present. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm your host, Caroline Rowe-Hammond. Google sex and taboo, and you'll be returned results like, it's 2021, why is sex still taboo? It's a fair question, it is 2021, so why is sex still taboo? Surely if the abolishment of taboo meant liberation and sexual freedom for all, we would have made more progress by now. This got me thinking, what are the underlying purposes taboo serves when it comes to sex? Does the removal of sexual taboos necessarily equate to liberation? Are sexual taboos even fundamentally at odds with shame-free sex? For some of us, the transgressive and the forbidden allows us to experience a sense of bravery, defiance and freedom. Sometimes the simple fact that something is taboo and forbidden is what makes it so exciting. Think about the last time you had sex or a sexual fantasy that felt naughty. It feels quite good, right? Would it have felt that good were it not for some element of taboo? We're so often told we can't do things or that our curiosity is inappropriate. We like to defy the odds and the norms. We like to break out of boxes. Enjoying taboo is completely normal and research tells us it's something most people do. Though we're living in a time of unprecedented sexual freedom, in many parts of the world, a deep ambivalence around sexuality persists. It leaves us seesawing between extremes of excessive license and repressive tactics. For example, the majority of sex education is about the dangers and the diseases, rarely the intimate and barely ever the imaginative. But we know our turn-ons are like languages. We can't unlearn them, but we can learn new ones. And as renowned psychotherapist Esther Perel says, Our fantasies and the taboos they contain are symbolic maps of our deepest needs and wishes. Accessing that vulnerability can turn our sex lives from a ledger into something so much greater. But getting there is a taboo in and of itself. It means talking about it. And that's what we're going to do in this episode. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Cheyenne. I'm 26 years old. I am queer. I'm a pansexual woman. I'm also a writer. I mostly write about sex and dating, primarily for Black Fat Femmes, queer femmes specifically, which is my identity. I think my existence is a, is a big-ass taboo, honestly, because I've always been a Black woman. I've always been fat. You know, I've always been queer. Here you're hearing from Cheyenne M. Davis, a writer working to break down racism and toxicity in the kink and online dating world. Cheyenne speaks a lot about the structural oppressions she's encountered in these communities that has been directed at many parts of her identity. I've always been interested in the role of women in society and what female-bodied people are allowed to do, encouraged to do. Sue J. Johnson also joins us on this episode. Her award-winning writing and films explore the ways that cultural expectations define our public and our private behaviour. I got really interested in women who defy those expectations. Both Cheyenne and Sue have direct experience of how taboo shapes the collective language and values of Western thinking when it comes to sexuality, especially female sexuality. So the current understanding is that the word taboo comes from indigenous cultures, particularly in the Pacific. Tapu in Māori or tabu in Tongan and Samoan are spiritual and social rules for behaviour. Understanding and living by tapu is a strong force in social and spiritual life. However, these rules aren't merely prohibitive. They're intended to protect sacredness and create reverence and respect. Alongside tapu sits the concept of mana. Many tapu were created to ensure the protection of mana. All things, animate or inanimate, possess a degree of mana, and certain human behaviour alters the equilibrium of mana in all things. Mana has lots of meanings, but often implies prestige, influence, or sacredness. While the word taboo has Polynesian origins and was first introduced into the English language by coloniser Captain James Cook, it's well established that forms of social rules are present in all societies throughout history, and these rules form the basis for social cohesion. It's pretty hard to imagine a world that could exist without taboo that wouldn't be extremely chaotic. From Freud to Steiner, thinkers have been chiming in on the role taboo plays in shaping our societies, and therefore us. And I think part of taboo is also that there's this historically an idea of like a supernatural consequence for taboo. But maybe in a more secular world, the consequences of breaking a taboo are social isolation, which is like a huge existential threat to us. The idea that we're going to be tossed out of the group. The cross-cultural misinterpretation here is that something being tapu or forbidden was actually in the sense of it being sacred or loaded with mana. The Western definition leans so far into the negative and the shame that the sacredness is forgotten. It's interesting because the translation it gives of it is actually a bit ambiguous. At the same time, it means the sacred, the inviolable, but also the forbidden. So what we keep today, I would say, as the meaning of the word taboo is this notion of forbidden, of banned, a prohibition mainly of an action that is imposed by a social custom. 
So it's a prohibition of an action, but also derivatively, I would say, of a conversation about that action. So a taboo is not only something that is not acceptable to do, but it's also something that is not acceptable to say or to mention. That's our third guest, Professor of Philosophy Jean Proust. Taboo is pretty familiar to all of us, even if we're not aware of it. It shapes so many parts of our identity and so many aspects of how we behave. And if you subscribe to the idea that sex is one of the underlying motivators for all or many of our actions, then looking at sexual taboos is really important. Let's find out how Cheyenne, Sue and Jean all started to look into that very subject. Taboo comes from a level of shaming people for existing in ways that they shouldn't be existing. And as long as we have that level of shame and that policing and that level of gatekeeping, we'll always have something we know as taboo. Cheyenne was maturing sexually and starting to work through the taboos she had encountered around race and fatness. Sue didn't get such an early start. Her realisations came from motherhood. As a young woman, she was very sensitive, but as she reached adulthood, was forced to numb herself out to become a grown-up. We're so good at moulding, training, shaping humans to ignore their bodies. And I'm like, that will never happen to my kids. And now I'm just like, fuck, just happens. It doesn't have to be this way. This denial of pleasure, this subverting of our bodies by focusing so much more on our minds at the expense of the rest of this incredible, intuitive part of ourselves. Um, there's a real cost to that. The cost is indeed real. The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalised recommendations. Kind of like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalised selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. Alors, we philosophers indeed don't talk much about sex. <laughs> it's always surprised me because it's such an essential dimension of human existence. Jean Proust's research into sexuality and desire stemmed from a frustration that sex, something that's such a part of human existence, was shied away from by philosophers. So philosophers are human beings, right? And so they think about sex, but they too are subjected to the norms imposed by the taboos. And when you look at what philosophy is supposed to be, it is supposed to be about exploring what makes human existence. What are the deep things that we deal with as humans, right? 
there is an omnipresence of sexual thoughts within us. Free and open conversation about sex is very in vogue right now, and this is often where the story ends. However, when it comes to taboo, particularly in relation to sexuality, there are so many layers that can be explored. Let's press on to unpack some of the nuances under the surface of sex positivity in relation to taboo. It's just interesting to me, this this idea about public discourse and making the speech about sex more public, more open, etc. So for 20 centuries, there has been basically a demonization of sexuality by Christianism. And I'm speaking here, obviously, about just the Western world, but it's, you know. After these 20 centuries of Puritanism, so to say, there is kind of a turnaround in the 60s and the 70s with a banalization, as if making love was now just a totally insignificant, trivial thing, just like having a drink or getting a massage or something, right? So here we're, I think, jumping from one mistake to another, actually. This pressure on people to be extremely forthcoming about their intimate life seems about as useful as the pressure to be silent about it. While I think it can be very helpful to make it a topic and to not be afraid to talk about it, I don't think it should be enforced to just make the conversation public at any cost, right? So it actually makes us forget how intimacy and and secrecy and maybe opacity might be at the very core also of sexual desire. There are some fantasies that we don't want or need to share with everyone that we don't even want to enact in real life, right? We can have our little private pornographic library. We don't have to share it with everyone, first of all, right? Transgression itself can be very exciting. So if taboo has some role to play in generating desire and maybe even preserving a sacred element of sex, is it as simple as suggesting some taboos are right and some taboos are wrong? This ties back to kink and how its communities exist as safe spaces for people to explore what the mainstream sees as taboo. And this is one of the main issues with taboo is that really they are determined by the person who is in power. So even when you move out of the mainstream and into an area that is taboo, there will still be forces at play that create other taboos. So really, you're constantly facing a journey of working through different taboos at different times, depending on where you are. And this is something Cheyenne noticed within the kink community as she encountered the same problems. People kind of think that because I'm a fat black femme, that I'm automatically dominant. On the one hand, Cheyenne was receiving unapologetic sexual advances and objectifying remarks. I get that on dating apps all across the board. Can you sit on my face? Can you smother me? On the other, blatant exclusion. I've seen a lot of like ads for like well-known sex parties or sex party collectorates where they will make it so exclusive. You have to be a certain height or you have to be a certain body type or you have to be a certain person. And even if they don't say it literally, there's still this undertone of you can't get in, you can't sit with us because you don't look a certain type of way. The very people that were claiming to create a safe space from oppression in the kink community were subjecting Cheyenne to the same kind of oppression by enforcing their own taboos that existed within kink. And it's like, well, what the fuck? Society doesn't want me to have access to it. Then I come to a community that gave this impression that I could exist in it, and now y'all are telling me the same thing. 
So we're starting to see here the imbalances and problems that start to emerge when taboos aren't examined carefully. And it helps to have some codes, some norms, but it also is really important that we question them all the time. So clearly the function of taboos in society is very diverse. When it comes to sexuality, desire and pleasure, some taboos risk creating harm, others have the power to be beneficial for our pleasure, and others leave us in a grey area where we don't know whether they're great or harmful. And echoing what Sue said just before, maybe the best we can do is to continually question them. Taboos against homicide, for instance, or incest have, uh, you know, obvious uh, social benefits and really taboos are here to maintain a certain type of social cohesion. Now, one problem that might come with that is the fact that this social cohesion might be in favor of the people in power. And that is why taboos are often associated with conservatism or conservatist ideas. But actually, I think it's a misconception because even for people who claim to be open-minded and uh, open to discuss anything, there is always some taboos, you know, somewhere. Unless you're an absolute nihilist, a moral skeptic to the max, right? All people, including progressive people, as they call themselves, or people who see themselves as liberals, they will have taboos as well. Against racism, for instance, against sexism also. So those are also taboos. So clearly taboos are not a bad thing per se, I would say, it all depends on what taboos we decide to impose and for what reasons. Because we create for sexual pleasure these scenarios, these situations, these stories, and this erotic imagination sometimes might very well contradict our ethical positions. So, for instance, you can very well be a, you know, a strong feminist, but enjoy being treated or at least fantasize about being treated as a means and an object, being used, etc. So why do these fantasies stimulate our sexual desire? What is it about transgression that is so alluring? Playing with certain transgression from a relatively puritanist way of looking at sexuality can be extremely, extremely stimulating. Now, does it mean that we should keep these taboos in place in order to make sure that sexual desire still exists? You see, there is a problem here because we need for it to remain a sin, right? If we want to taste the deliciousness of it, right? Those taboos are still very much here and we can play with them and being playful with them should be something that we're able to do in bed but also just in our minds. Identifying, questioning, transgressing and playing with taboos is also a form of activism. One of the things about taboo that's important is that I think taboo creates a space where people can congregate and also like do a lot of activism that can be kind of hidden from harm too, because I think a lot of activism shouldn't always be forthcoming. There should be some behind the scenes work that is really crucial to how movements mobilize. So using that identifier as being taboo is helpful because it can help communities work more underground to get the job done too. So I think taboo is not always, even though it has a negative connotation, I don't think it's a negative thing. Right, and it's not like all taboos should be maintained, but it's just saying, what we do with these taboos might actually turn out to be a positive thing sometimes.
If we encounter a taboo that contributes to our sexual desire, is it possible to explore them in a way that reduces the potential harm to others? This is how I put it. Everyone has preferences at the end of the day and preference can be perceived as problematic because it's like you prefer one person over another. I prefer taller people, but I'm not going to be in every tall person's face and talking to them because they're tall. We can relate it to fatness. Yes, you can be fat amorous or you can like people that are larger, but you're not going to be a chubby chaser and be in every fat person's face for the sake of it. You can prefer certain body types or certain people because even me, when it comes to certain partners, I do prefer partners to be larger bodies as well. However, you're not trying to take something from somebody because they're, they're fat. Like, You're not trying to just consume their fatness or trying to use their fatness as a way to get off. This is a fine line we might observe if we're going to begin exploring our individual relationships to taboo, what we would like to transgress and how we explore our sexual fantasies. I would say that the link between taboo and desire is fetishization mostly because people don't understand how to make that consensual and how to make it in a way where all parties feel feel wanted and safe usually fetishization is not consensual. It only gives merit or it's only meritable for people that are actively fetishizing that person. It's never something that is going to be a good thing for that person that's receiving it. Because even when it comes to fat people and even my own experiences, I've been with so many partners where they've had sex with me in private, but then they wouldn't take me to meet their family. Or then they wouldn't go outside with me in public. Or then they wouldn't even want to be caught dead with me anywhere outside of the bedroom. That ties into like phobia too, because there's this inherent fear of, oh, I really like this person or I like something about this person that I want to consume for myself, but I don't like them enough to even give them access to being a fucking person. One person could be acting out a desire on another non-consenting person and taking advantage of some kind of privilege or power or control. So I think there's a real space between like taboo and consent. We can definitely, again, understand better where these types of fantasies or fetishes are coming from. What exactly triggered them? And maybe by knowing better their cause, the person who feels this kind of desires or feels this kind of preferences might at least be able to question them in a critical way, be able to look and confront where they're coming from and from what imperialist backgrounds they might be coming from, that is a very interesting thing to do anyway. You know you're being fetishized because people don't want to have a conversation. They just want to have parts of you and that's it. Because it's like you're telling me that all I'm worth is you telling me that I should sit on your face and you haven't even said hi to me. So how might we begin to hold space for deeply personal and frankly really tricky conversations in the public sphere? while also maintaining individuals' right to privacy and discretion, and while protecting the desires that are important to us. It's not about normalizing, it's about allowing people autonomy. I think we need to fight more for autonomy and not normalization because it's normal just to exist as we are, but it's about having the autonomy or the choice. That is what we should be pushing for. So by trivializing, I think the risk to promote one mainstream way of looking at sex without doing real justice to the complexity of the norms that are involved in sexuality. There's an unapologetic sex positivity that exists in the world where we're asked to put all of our cards on the table or get the hell out. Positivity as a concept and a construct is very problematic because it's like, okay, certain things are good, but then when you look at it, we're not accepting everything. 
you know, there is something almost a bit pushy in asking everybody to be open about speaking about sexuality. It's sad to see that now you're not cool somehow if you are not comfortable with your own nudity or speaking about sex. You know, there is this judgment upon people who don't feel comfortable speaking about sex and even less when asked to exhibit their sexual being because we're obviously sexual beings. Maybe not. Why force this omnipresence of sexual allusions? What kind of openness is that about sex if it's coercive? So we've got into this space where we're trying so, so hard to liberate ourselves from the taboos surrounding sex, yet we seem to struggle to find and cultivate neutral territory where desires simply exist as they are, without positive or negative judgement. And perhaps we're still focusing too heavily on enforcing social norms without considering the important role of autonomy and self-awareness. Instead of creating genuine openness, perhaps this is just a pendulum swing from one rigidity to another. And of course, how can we not be so focused on social norms? It's how most of us were raised. It's through that lens that most of us were taught about sex. At school, people might speak about procreation, if they're lucky, and STDs, right? But they don't explore topics such as, you know, respect of the other partner or very little. And they don't interrogate what is sexual orientation, the historicity behind it, the various nature of intimate relationships and sexual practices. And also, they don't question the language that is being used to describe sexual acts or sexual organs. It seems we've reached a real point of confusion in our conversations around sex because the words are often loaded with judgment, without consideration, and words are only one small part of the picture. So alongside sex education, Sue proposes a kind of sense education. By sense education, I mean the ways in which we become literate in our own bodies, mapping our bodies, learning to become literate so we can speak that language with ourselves and with one another is what I mean by sense education. Like the more we like wire ourselves up, the more sensitive we become. It has to be done on a collective level. You know, parents are, I think, have an opportunity to communicate with that with their kids. Like, tell me how that feels, name that sensation. We can name sensations for our children too. That could be done at school. Ugh, man, so much could be done at school in terms of creating a language to talk about how we're feeling and also just the culture of school where we're honoring the whole body. Women's taboo to talk about touching our kids. We got to, we have to touch each other. We have to learn how to touch each other. We can't be so afraid of the ways that that is abused that we stop doing that. While education is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle, it's very easy to rely on this as a fix-all that will change the world and solve all of these problems. However, as adults, it's incredibly important for us to consider how we navigate these issues from a moment-to-moment basis. Children are one thing, but yeah, I think it's very important to educate in a way where we're not shaming the person who doesn't know better 
than the mainstream porn that they've been watching all this time, right? And, and who can blame them? This is the only thing that's out there. Therefore, the, the utility, I think, for the type of discussion we're having right now and for more openness about really talking about sex, but not as if it was just anything. So to start summing it all up, there are taboos that are maintained by power and privilege that exist within society, and this is not really a new concept. These taboos cause oppression, which we can reflect on and let go of if we need or want to. There are also lots of taboos that we can play with, that we can transgress, and that stimulate sexual desire. But exploring those taboos can easily lead to fetishization and the treating of another person that results in them feeling that they don't have control and that their personhood is being ignored. We also know how the growing sex positivity movement is breaking down some of the taboos surrounding sex and sexuality, but not necessarily accepting or acknowledging everyone's voice in the conversation. Cheyenne created her online publication, Unveiled, to bring inclusivity and neutrality back into the conversation. Neutrality being something that creates space where some of these desires and fantasies become less innocuous, less controversial, and a space where desires are simply allowed to exist as they are. If I don't even have access to the language that I created, clearly you don't want me in this space. So I wanted to give a hub for people to feel wanted and heard in their stories. And so one of my goals is to, for people to understand is that just because we're in a, a community where taboo is something that we're used to does not mean that there's going to be places where we feel safe or comfortable or even included. And a lot of times we don't. But Cheyenne's outspokenness and willingness to tell her story has not only allowed her to foster a community, but also heal herself. In terms of my own sexual identity, I would say that taboo has informed how I navigate my queerness, but I think now I'm using it as inspiration to break free of certain ideals and certain phobias that I'm unpacking myself, and it's been very liberating. Liberation from the harmful taboos surrounding sexuality is a journey that is nuanced for everybody. It's so the operating system of a culture needs to get updated regularly. I believe wherever you find yourself in your relationship with sexuality, as Sue said, our operating systems require regular updating. This might mean questioning which taboos you'd like to hold on to and which ones you'd like to show the door. The things that we should make taboo, we don't make taboo. Like we don't make rape culture taboo. We don't make hyper-masculinity taboo. We don't make phobia taboo. And we're always trying to figure out how to dismantle certain systems because that doesn't happen overnight, nor is that something that's going to happen completely. There's no 100% anything. Binary understandings are tricky in any case, and we're willing to accept this in so many areas, for example, in relation to gender and sexual orientation. Yet we've ignored this concept when it comes to taboo and really tend to think of these issues on a binary of right and wrong. We know boundaries are complex and permeable. They're certainly not fixed. Yet the word taboo has become so stigmatized that it has become something we cannot really explore or subvert, when in reality it might be a very welcome guest at the dinner party of desire. 
Life isn't always about the yes or the no, but also the delightful confusion of a maybe. Without the maybe, there is no exploration, and that's fairly crucial to sex. These things are highly individual and important to consider for yourself and with others again and again and again. It's something that will change throughout your lifetime. There are no right or wrong answers, just opportunities for exploration. The main thing is knowing how to keep yourself safe and well as you navigate these murky waters. Oh, and one more thing. If you're going to try some kinky sex or have an interest in exploring your desires within the kink community, remember this. When I tell you that it's uncomfortable and that I didn't consent to this, you would not have a problem with it. You say, you know what, my apologies, I'm holding myself accountable. How would you like to be approached? You would make it more of a conversation. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. There's also lots more info and links to further reading in the show notes. I'm Caroline Morrow-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcher, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.